0: Here at Taproot, we believe that the words of the Bible are the very words of God. So each week, as we gather as a church, we read the Bible here at the center point of our liturgy. And as, as you hear the word read aloud, may it, reorient it, may it reorient your heart toward the beauty and grace of God. I'll be reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. After the reading of God's word, I will proclaim, this is the word of the Lord, And I would invite you to prayerfully respond with, Speak, Lord, your servants here. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these referring to all that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats.
1: Well, good morning, Taproot. Morning. 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 Yeah, good, good response. (laughs) It's always interesting to me to hear the um, songs that Will selects, and then to hear uh, Chase's prayer and uh, the reading that, uh, thank you, Alex or um, Kyle, um, gave us, and they're they're all tied together. I don't know if you heard that, Uh, but it um, it ties in very nicely with. What I studied and what I prepared uh, now it just remains to be seen if I can take what I studied and prepared on the piece of paper and deliver it. So always a question when it comes to me. So my name is Jim Cobb. I'm one of the pastors here at Taproot. Uh, if you're visiting us this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're a visitor and you want to know more about us and Us maybe to get a little bit acquainted with you. There's a comment or a connect card in the back of the seats in front of you. You can fill that out. If you turn it in at the connect desk or the welcome desk, which actually looks like the front of a bus, because it is a bus, that's where it came from. Uh, You turn your card in there, and they have a small gift that they will give you. So, um, again, if you're new here, Taber Church exists to make disciples, to train disciples and to send disciples. The idea is we want to take this good news of Christ and we want to spread it as far as we can, not just Burien and South Seattle, but around the world. So we've been in a sermon series uh, through the book of Colossians. We call this the supremacy of Christ. Uh, Now, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae for two reasons. One was to encourage them and challenge them to greater devotion to Christ. The second was the Colossian church was facing some some difficult cultural pressures from a couple of false teachers, and they were being tempted to turn away from Jesus. So that prompted the letter. This morning we're going to look at uh, the dangers of false teachings in Colossians 2, the passage that, uh, that Kyle read for us. And I'm going to show today, or at least attempt to show, How these false teachers were threatening the community at Colossae, and what this means for us today now. So, I guess to give an illustration, Uh, years ago, when my daughter was about this size, uh, we took a a day hike up in the area Mount 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 around Mount Rainier in the summertime. And, you know, it was only going to be, I don't know, maybe two miles at the most. We are hiking up this trail. At the, at the end of this trail was a lookout, so we figured the scenery ought to be great once you get to the lookout. And we're hiking along through the North Cascades, and so it's all trees and bush and just this, this trail that's running along. Well, we came to the edge of the trees, and we were suddenly on an area with, with no growth at all. It was a... Um, It was a rock slide. It was was a pretty steep slope, and it was a big area that that was just wide open, and the trail just kind of worked its way across from this rock slide. Now, these rocks weren't round. They were flat. They were, I don't know, shale or slate or something, and they were everywhere. Like I say, this big, gradual slope, and somebody had worked a trail across this, they put down a little dirt to kind of hold things together. And so we started walking across this. Of course, now you're out in an open area. There's lots of things to look around and see. And my daughter's in front of me, and I'm behind her. And uh, as I'm walking along, I realize if we step off this path onto that loose rock, you'd fall. And you would slide all the way down this slope. And I'm looking down with this... I mean, to a dad, it looks like, looks like about six miles that you would slide, it, probably a couple hundred feet, you know, at most. But if <clears throat> my daughter and myself had misstepped, gone off that path and slid down there, to rescue her, I'd have to go back to where the trees were, work my way down through the bushes, find the bottom, and get out and find her. So as a dad, my, my protective instincts were on high alert. My daughter's just walking along, and, you know, this is really cool. You can see stuff, and I'm, stay on the path, stay on the path. Don't get off one side or the other. So she's just walking along like this. I'm right behind her, and I'm like this. Because for obvious reasons, I don't want her to stray from that path. I mean, it's, it looked like it was about this wide, but, I, you know, it was, it was wide enough. But you get the point. The... I think this is what Paul is concerned about with the Colossian church. You've got a path. You need to stay on it. The other thing about this passage is it's, it's in a transition point in the book. It's between the theology of who Jesus is, which we see in the first two chapters, and chapter 3, which tells us how we then behave as believers, how we hold fast to um, Jesus, how we operate our lives every day. So you have this, this theology and then the practice, the or practical. Orthodoxy, as we call it. Orthopraxy, or correct living, as we call it. Faith to works. Now, just to be, complete, just to be accurate, we're saved by faith alone, but, we're not, saved, but not by faith that remains alone. There's an expectation in the scriptures that if we really believe these things, this correct theology, it works out in our practice, in our daily lives, in how we we operate. Today's passage fits between those two sections. Holding fast to Jesus means avoiding any false teachings or beliefs. Today's passage instructed the Colossian church about what identities they needed to avoid. Now, this was needed so that their love of Jesus would be joyful and unhindered. While the false teaching they faced was very much a first and second century heresy, uh, we face similar things today. The answer is the same. Avoid any identity that replaces or attempts to dilute who Jesus is. And again, now to recap, last week Pastor Luis taught that Jesus is enough. To quote him, any belief idea or system or of thought that would suggest that Jesus is not enough and Jesus is not supreme and not sovereign and not infinitely and exclusively worthy of our absolute devotion and worship anything that doesn't that doesn't give that is demonic at its core Jesus is our identity now 2 weeks ago pastor will identified autonomous individuality as a prime example of a modern-day system of thought that we face today. That system teaches that we, as individuals, are supreme, sovereign, free. We are obsessed, as a culture, with individual freedom. Believing this teaching means it becomes part of our identity. And once an idea becomes our identity, we will follow it blindly. And we will resist any attempt by someone to correct our identity, and we will see that as an attack on our person. Individuality even colors how we interpret the Bible. You know, you open the book, and, but as an individu- as, as a, as a, when you look at it as an individual, we clearly see the passages that are directed to an individual, but we tend to misread passages that are directed to a community. And we tend to interpret those passages as just for the individual. It's part of a, it's just part of the blindness that we tend to have as a culture. Now, the answer to answer these false teachings is to stay connected to Christ, which we will see in chapter three, and chapter three will begin next week, and then we'll continue on with it uh, in, the, in the next year. It gives specific instructions about how we're to hold fast to Jesus or to seek the things above. So. I want to pray for us, and then we'll get right into the passage itself. Lord Jesus, we thank you for how you have uh, brought us this scripture today. We ask that you'd open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. And just give us attentive hearts and uh, uh, to what you'd speak to us today. In Christ's name, amen. So in the passage, there are two specific warnings that are given. The first one is, "Let no one pass judgment on any of you." That's in verse 16. See, what these false teachers would, would do is they give the church rules to follow, which were supposedly from God, and then they would condemn anybody that messed up, that missed it. They made behavior that was not sin to be sinful. The false teachers were pronouncing God's judgment on those who did not follow their teachings. So you think about that. When, someone, when you accept someone's judgment or condemnation like this in an area that's really not um, biblical, it usually means that our identity is not completely found in Christ. That's why judgment feels like judgment. So the second warning here is let no one disqualify you. Verse 18. So, what does that mean? Great question. I'm glad you asked that. (laughs) Think of when you're watching your favorite sports team. Your team is losing, but they make a score in the last few seconds of the game that puts them ahead. You're ecstatic, right? We're winning for a moment until you learn that there was a problem with the last play. A foul was called, a flag was thrown, the referee blew the whistle. Something was done by your team that disqualified that last score. Is the game over? Did we lose? Or can we still win? See, someone was not playing by the rules, and it could cost them, the team, the entire team, the victory. See, as Christians we also have something that we can lose. We call it a reward. Now we know, I'm not going to get into it too much, but there is a a reward that as Christians we receive after we die. I don't think that is what the reward here that is at risk in this passage. See, if you look at the text, the context that the text gives to being disqualified is church growth. This is a reward that we will see in this life. Namely, that we grow as a church. I'll get, into, I'll get into that a lot more. See, when a church switches its worship from Jesus to some other identity, it will lose the joy of a unified community. When we follow angels or philosophy or ideas instead of Christ, we will lose the spiritual nourishment from Jesus which breaks down our unity as a church and robs us of the joy that we had as a connected people. That switch of head, Christ being the head, disqualifies us from the prize of a growing, unified, joy-filled local church. Now our identity with Jesus provides us, provides us our church, with spiritual nourishment or biblical truth. From that nourishment, we experience growth that comes from close Christian to Christian love. And we call that fellowship, it's an older term. Uh, Today, we call that community. It's more the term we use nowadays. But the word in in the Greek is koinonia, which means a sharing, having things in common. Biblical community is the sharing of Christ with each other, which brings joy. Lack of community, robs the believers of joy. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about this concept of community just to make sure it's clear. Community or fellowship or what I've mentioned is Christian to Christian love. Community is more than just uh, casual or affinity based connections between believers. Community is more than friendship. It is more than a Christian clique Or a bubble that we tend to isolate ourselves in as believers. If we think that we are hanging out, if we think that hanging out with other believers that are a lot like us, where there is little or no conflict, uh, we think that that's experiencing community. Well, it is, but that's a very anemic or weak form of community. Community happens when one Christian confesses to another confesses sin to another. It happens when one believer confronts another believer with their sin. Community happens when one believer offends another believer, but then repents and is forgiven. Community happens when one Christian can share their failures with another, even when those failures are habitual. Community happens when one believer prays for another believer who is struggling with habitual sin. Community happens when one Christian shares the truth of the Bible with another Christian. Community happens when believers gather together and sing. Community happens when two believers happen to be arguing over some Bible passage, and they can both stop, switch sides, and they know enough from listening that they can argue the other side to each other and continue the argument. Community happens when a wealthy believer shares his wealth with a poor believer. Community happens when two very different believers can be close, despite the challenges that those differences provide. This includes differences such as culture, race, ethnicity, gender, language, age, politics, economics, Lifestyles, personalities. See, community happens when a Christian is holding so tightly to Jesus that they can hold tightly to another believer. Check out 1 John 4, or First John 2, uh, sorry, First John 4.20, which says, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is where we get the idea in, in Christendom that there are, there's a vertical relationship we have with the Lord and there's horizontal relationships that we have with everybody else. And what he's saying is that if you don't have those horizontal relationships, you really can't say you have that vertical relationship. Now when churches grow, they do so in two ways. They grow in in numbers, just more people are part of the church. But they also grow in Christian maturity within the church. Now, our tendency as Americans, especially as Americans evangelicals, and especially as Americans evangelical whites, we tend to see this growth in maturity as individualistic. Now, it's true that an individual believer will mature in their personal piety. They will mature in their knowledge of the Bible. They will mature in their faithfulness in prayer and in giving and in being, and, and, and just even attending the community. But the maturity needed for church growth also requires a maturity in our connections within our community of faith. That's not an individual thing. I mean, the old saying about marriage was, it's not a 50-50 proposition. It's 100%, 100%, or else it just doesn't work. So this is what I contend that Colossians 2.19 is getting at with its imagery of Christ the head and the nourishment of the body that comes through the connections and causes growth. If you check out the phrase, knit together, which you find in Colossians 2.2, it's the same phrase that we find in Colossians 2.19, knit together. And there's a parallel passage in Ephesians 4.16, says almost the same thing, and it uses that same phrase. See, these instructions are about the collective, not necessarily just the individual. Now, these texts are evidence that Christian maturity is more than just an individual's isolated faith in Jesus. Maturity is how we treat each other. And you can also check out how both Ephesians and other New Testament books are structured a lot like the book of Colossians. That is, the author first, as I mentioned, establishes who Jesus is, that theology, that vertical relationship, and then explains how Christians should behave, that horizontal relationship. Again, chapter 3 of Colossians, it has some instructions about piety, but the majority of the instruction is about individual piety. The majority of, the, of what is said is about how Christians should treat each other as brothers and sisters. And we see this same pattern a lot in the New Testament. See, the false teaching attacks uh, unity by introducing false identities that erode Christian community. Uh, Now, the teachings that the Colossian church was facing, as best we can understand them, were a mixture of Jewish laws, Jewish mysticism, uh, Greek philosophy, plus ideas and beliefs that were um, from other ancient Middle Eastern religious systems. This mixture or blending or syncretism, as we call it, was combining all these things. And they were combining those things with teachings about Jesus. Just take the name of Jesus and sprinkle them in certain places in the teaching, and that was this syncretism or mixing that was going on. These false teaching came with certain rules and activities and rituals which included the following. One was requirements to follow certain festivals, new moons, and the Sabbath. Well, that phrase you find in the Old Testament. That's a very Jewish idea. Festivals, new moons, and Sabbath. Asceticism, which is the denial of of bodily things, included fasting, dietary restrictions, and drink restrictions. Now, Jewish culture had dietary and and um, fasting, but they didn't, they didn't have any restrictions on drink except not to get drunk with alcohol. That was something added in from another one of the uh, ancient cultures. And thirdly, they had the worship of spiritual beings, making connections with something in the spiritual realm. They call it angels, but angels usually was a catch-all term for any type of thing, there was any type of being that was in the spiritual realm. Now it's likely that the church at Colossae was a multi-ethnic mix of Jewish, Jews, Greeks, and other non-Jews, which we call Gentiles, from the area. The false teaching tended to divide the false teaching tended to divide believers along ethnic lines. For example, dietary rules uh, separated. Separated Jew from Gentile. As a Jewish, you didn't eat these things. As a Gentile, you did. Angel worship would do that as well because such practices were forbidden to Jews. To someone at Colossae that was ethnically Jewish, rules about eating and the Sabbath would appeal to their identity as a Jew. Now, to the Greek, on the other hand, teachings about knowledge and this, this, um, uh, this, this divine spark that you would have, uh, Gnostic is what we, call it. we refer to it now, would appeal to their ethnic identity as a philosophical culture. Think of people who in their history had Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. That was part of their identity. So this would appeal to them. To other Gentiles, other people from that area, Teachings about angels would fit right in with their Mesopotamian background. Now, to the Colossian believer, who was still in their early learning stages about identity with Christ, these teachings sounded like what their mom taught them as kids. The teachings also sounded like what the church was teaching about Jesus. And these teachings were cleverly syncretized or blended to deceive. And what they did, the teachings allowed the believer to measure their spiritual maturity with earthly standards. If you were mature, you followed these rules. If you were mature, you observed these dates on the calendar, religiously. If you were mature, you separated yourself from worldly things, like certain foods or certain practices or that that sort of stuff. If you were mature, you had a connection with a spiritual being, which was really a false Jesus or, you know, an angel, basically. Verse 17 specifically calls the calendar events, these festivals and new moon and Sabbath, as a shadow of things to come, while Jesus is the substance. See, what he's referring to here is these calendar activities point to a spiritual reality. The Sabbath itself pointed to the rest that was promised to come when Jesus came. But as soon as Jesus came, well, he is the rest. You just have to read the book of Hebrews, you can see that Christ is the rest. You don't need this shadow anymore, you have the real thing. I think this shadow substance idea was captured really well last week by Luis when he told the story of talking to his kid about Disney World in Florida. All right. But then it says, what would it have been like if, in, after doing all that talk, I said, well, let's go down to the Disney store instead in South Center. Okay, the kid knows the difference. <laughs> One was substance, the other was shadow. Now, I should say this at, at this point. Um, The church does retain and experience certain activities or liturgies, we call them, that point to Jesus. The letter to Colossae is really not addressing these activities specifically. Now, these types of activities that the church retained include things like baptism, gathered worship, communion, marriage, giving, and good works. These also include festivals like Christmas. Christmas right? And Easter. See, these activities are also shadows of the substance of Christ, to be, to be fair, to be sure. but And none of these rituals by themselves can save us. But the church retained these rituals because they effectively point directly to the cross or the resurrection or Christ as the head of all. The other rituals, like the Jewish dietary law, for example, ceremonies, etc., were not retained by the early church because they tended to diminish or obscure the message of the cross. Just check out Acts chapter 9, where the Apostle Peter had to set aside his dietary habits, his Jewish habits, when he went to give the gospel to a Gentile. And accept that Gentile's hospitality, which hospitality in those days would include a meal. So he was going to somebody's house. He couldn't say there, well, I'm bringing you the gospel, but I'm not going to eat that pork and that, you know. No. He saw a vision where God said it's all clean because the focus was moving not not from, from the rituals to Christ himself. See, the false teaching at Colossae are examples of rituals and activity that obscure the cross by promoting individual pride. I'm a good believer because I do these things. See, the text asks the questions, if you've died to Christ, why do you submit to these rules? That's a great question. See, that question exposes a person's identity what they really believe in. When Jesus came, let's just talk about identity for a minute. When Jesus came, he identified with us. That's what Christmas is all about, right? God becomes Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, he became human. He identified with us. While on earth, our life experiences became his experiences. On the cross, his fate, his his sentence became our sentence. Our sin became him. And that's what killed him. His death became our payment for those sins. His resurrection became our resurrection. He now sits next to God the Father, right next to him, so that we can talk to God the Father directly. His community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, became our community. He identified with us, so by faith, we could identify with him. See, if our identity is is with Jesus why would we then follow laws and rules that may only point to Jesus when we already have Jesus himself? To use Louise's Disney World illustration, why would you want to trade or replace the ticket you already have to Disney World to go to the Disney store instead? Once you knew what, the, what, what if you, and, and kids know what that really is. So, I think we can see here how... Um, uh, autonomous individuality can erode Christian unity. It provides a false identity. Now, individuality is not all wrong by itself. The Bible does speak to individuals when it comes to its. It's, it's as individuals, we will someday stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is as individuals, we're expected to respond to the gospel message for ourselves but our culture, again, is um, the ocean that we swim in, is highly individualistic. And hopefully you can see that this kind of, this has a tendency to erode church culture and that connectedness that we have with each other because we want to, we want to stay independent. It's an identity we have, and it, it, it impedes Christian-to-Christian Christian love. Now, I've got a few minutes yet this morning. I, I'm at 30 minutes, I, so I've got, I, I got time for a couple of questions, if you have them. If anything's not clear about what I've shared, and then I'm going to talk about what way that we could apply this passage. So if there's no questions, either I put you all to sleep, or I was good in my communication. Okay. So how might we have... An identity that replaces Jesus. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because, again, as individuals, it's very difficult to see something that we are blind to in ourselves. It really takes somebody else looking at us. Well, here are some suggestions to how to apply this passage that should challenge our identity. Question. Are you free to be in community with anyone here, as I've explained it? Are you experiencing community with others here at Taproot? How about community with those who are different or outside of your comfortable circle of friends? Somebody a different generation. We do have some diversity in in generations here at Taproot. So here's a suggestion. Find somebody that you are not comfortable with and talk to them. About it. Here's, here's one for you. <clears throat> find somebody that voted differently from you in the last presidential election. Get together and find out why they voted that way. Purpose is not to, con- to change, the con- change, change how they believe, but understand the basis behind it. You may discover that you've accepted an identity or belief that... that Limits your growth in community at Taproot. The point's not just to meet each other, the point is to grow closer to Jesus. So, Will, you can bring up the music team at this point. So, we are going to continue our worship together now in song. And during this time, we encourage all believers to participate in the ceremony of taking communion, also known as the Lord's, Lord's Supper. We have the elements here in the front of the room. During the song, you come up, take a bit of bread, dip it in the uh, uh, wine or grape juice, take it back to your seats, spend some time in prayer and reflection, and then eat the bread, just, just take and consume the bread. And again, this is a, a ceremony that points to what Jesus did on the cross. It doesn't save us, but it allows us to experience, using all five of our senses, what the Lord set aside as a way to remember remember Him. And if you have children in Taproot Kids, now is a good time to bring them back uh, to the room this morning. They can worship with us. So let me pray for us, and we'll... Uh... Spend a little more time in worship. Father, we just thank you for how you have uh, given your word that, that we might know you better. And thank you for your love for us. Thank you for just the opportunity and the privilege and the freedom to come together as a community and, and worship you and just enjoy your presence among us. In Christ's name, amen.